0: Hi, everyone. My name is Leticia Peguero, and thank you for joining me on Out of the Margins, where we're defining youth justice one podcast at a time. I'm the ED, the Executive Director of the Andrus Family Fund, At the Andrews Family Fund, we partner with organizations who impact the lives of young people, either through their direct service work, through policy and advocacy work, and definitely through community organizing all over the country. We're specifically interested in young people of color who are negatively impacted and affected by systems that we call disruptive systems, like the juvenile justice system, the foster care system. And yes, even the education system can sometimes be disruptive to young people of color in the United States. Through this podcast, we hope to shed some light on the issues we're working on and hear from our grantee partners on ways that they're creating a more just society for our country's young people. I have the privilege today of having as my guest, Jodi Kent Levy. She heads the Campaign for Fair Sentencing of Youth so today we're going to talk about youth justice, lift up the winds, talk about the challenges, and get a little rooted in the history of fair sentencing efforts and juvenile life without parole. So Jody, welcome, welcome to Out of the Margins today. Thank you so much for taking time. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so before we dig deep into your work I I like to start by having you tell me and tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, well, I was uh, born in a suburb of Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a diehard Red Sox fan. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> um,
0: you know I live by Yankee Stadium. <laughs> yeah, I know,
1: it's, we just shouldn't talk about it right now, especially. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I, was, um, I lived outside of Boston um, most of my childhood, moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina for high school, um, actually moved back to the Boston area for college. I uh, had, have very progressive parents who have always instilled in me um, a, a desire to give back, um, to, you know, recognize the privilege we have, um, to use our education and, and our opportunities to, um, you know, really stand with those who don't have the, didn't have the opportunities that we have had. Um, so I sometimes joke my parents, you know, we're hippies. And so, and so they just, you know, I think raised me to think about the world as a place that was, that was broken in many ways, but that we, you know, have a role in fixing it, every single one of us. And um, it was always my desire to find a career in which I could meet the brokenness of the world with my greatest strengths, the world's greatest needs with my greatest strengths. And Um, you know, I feel privileged, frankly, to have found a career that I am so passionate about, you know, that really came to be when I moved to California after college, I joined the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, which is sort of similar to AmeriCorps, but there's a spiritual component. Um, and I lived in community in East Los Angeles, um, a very low income area, a large uh, gang population, lots of. Um, Gang activity in that community uh, was introduced to Father Greg Boyle, who runs Mm -hmm. Homeboy Industries, and um, Javier Starring, a Mm -hmm. chaplain um, at the time at at the local juvenile hall, and was given the opportunity to go and volunteer in the juvenile halls with young people. Um, And that's where, you know, I really started to wrap my head around just how huge. Um, the problem was in, um, you know, how we treat our young people, particularly kids of color, um, who've grown up poor and without the opportunities that I had. And in working with these young people, I was blown away by their resilience, um, by their just willingness to, um, press on, um, against all odds. I, you know, Recognized that our system was incredibly broken, and and you know, completely disregarding the humanity of these kids, um, and giving up on them in a way that I just was, you know, refusing to. You know, I worked um, there with one young person in particular um, every week, and I'll never forget him looking me in the eyes at the age of fifteen and saying, "Jody, I have no hope for my life." Wow. And I thought my God, we have failed these kids. How is a 15-year-old boy uh, without hope? And, you know, it was there that I really, you know, found my calling, if you will, or, you know, made the decision that this was just, this is where I wanted to, to dedicate my career. I really wanted to stand with these young people and make sure that we as a society weren't giving up on them.
0: So you said just like a minute ago, um, the system was completely broken and lately, I've been challenged uh, when I say that, um, in part by organizers, right, folks that are doing either JJ or juvenile justice organizing. Um, and they're, they say to me all the time that the system isn't broken. Like, it's actually mm-hmm. um, doing exactly what it was designed to do when we look at the history of incarceration, sort of, right, that, how, how deeply tied to... Um, To slavery, it is. And so Mm -hmm. I'm just really curious from your perspective um, is it that the system is broken, or is it that the system is so problematic, in part because it's tied to um, this structure of historical structure of of policing certain segments of the population?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. And I'll I'll be honest in saying that my perspective that the system was broken was very much rooted in my own life experience and my mm. own privilege, right? Mm. Like I could not wrap my head around a world in which kids would be thrown into a system like this and left to die in some cases mm. Um, mm. without um, the kind of advocacy and the the kind of yeah, I mean the talent and the and the yeah. activism that was required to make sure that these kids actually had a fair shot, um, you know, both before they entered the system and once they were in it. You know, it just seemed like they were getting swallowed up in this, and, mm-hmm. and it was impacting their lives forever. So I was certainly coming from a place where that just that wasn't that wasn't okay. That's not how things were supposed to work. And uh, you know, your point is a good one that you know the more you look at it, the more you have to question. Mm-hmm. is this how it was intended to be? Um, I think we have, um, you know, a lot of work to do to understand our past in the way that, and, and, um, you know, to speak truthfully about our past and how it connects to where we are now, especially as it relates to mass incarceration. I've had um, the incredible privilege of working with Brian Stevenson um, mm-hmm. since I started at the campaign and I think he has done extraordinary work in raising the consciousness of um, a lot of Americans and white folks in particular um, in recent years with his book and with the work he's doing um, in, in Alabama to um, create a museum and a lynching memorial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that that sort of work is essential in helping us understand Um, the criminal justice system as we know it and the system that you know I encountered uh, just out of college as a naive social justice oriented uh, person excited you know white person excited to take on um, take on the world and um, but I'd like to think that it's, you know, in in saying something's broken, there's hope it can be fixed. That's why I continue to say it, um, because I am determined to find a way, you know, to be part of uh, the effort to see it improve, Um, whether it's dismantling the system that is um, intentionally railroading our kids of color, or fixing a system that is um, railroading our kids of color. I feel like we all have a role in trying to understand it and be part of of making uh, it better and making it just, making it fair. Um, I know that the justice system that exists for the kids in Los Angeles that I was working with was not the justice system I ever would have faced. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, In thinking about kids who are sentenced to life without parole, um, I feel strongly that if it was predominantly white kids getting life without parole, there would be no life without parole for children, right? Mm. Um, We think about what are the alternatives? Um, You know, what should we do to hold young people accountable for serious crimes? Well, we actually know um, it's, it's what we do with with white kids who come from, uh, you know, um, who have money and, and who have access to, Um, resources that these kids, these kids don't have. So,
0: you know, I was at this meeting and it it was the part of the meeting where there were lots of funders and there's sort of an exciting moment in uh, criminal justice um, uh, or, you know, ending mass incarceration, sort of, right? The, the, The conversation that in the funding community that we're having, it's an exciting time because as people that have been, you know, some of the funders that have been in in the work for a long time will say, there's more funders than ever that are interested in these issues, which I think, you know, always uh, more is, that can be better and isn't always better actually. Um, But there was like, there was a moment where I was, I was like a little disturbed at the conversation because we were having this conversation as though mass incarceration or ending mass incarceration or juvenile life without parole is race neutral. Mm. And I was sort of like, am I, you know, am I making this up? Like no one's really talked about race in this meeting. How do we talk about the work that you're doing or can we talk about the work that you're doing without talking about it from a space of, of race,
1: very origin of these extreme sentences are directly tied to racism. Um, You know, if you look at the history in the 1980s and 90s, there was a group of criminologists who put forward a theory called the Super Predator Theory that said that there were gonna be godless, fatherless monsters uh, wreaking havoc in our communities and committing violent, serious violent crimes. And that with along with that theory came images of black children Hmm. and boys, and they were defined in the media and beyond by these established criminologists who were being funded by, um, you know, our Department of Justice under uh, the Clinton administration. Um, And they were considered, you know, the enemy, what we should all fear. (laughs) <laughs> and it was building off of already existing racial bias and racism, right? Um, yeah. But it was done in such a way because it had this credibility and it had all this media attention that it took off. And as a result, states changed their laws to make it easier to try children as adults at younger and younger ages. And at the same time, we saw truth in sentencing um, and mandatory minimums uh, being imposed around the country. Um, in the adult justice system. And so, you know, with children who are being tried as adults, they're now exposed to these adult sentences. And so the confluence of these laws led to um, these extreme sentences like life without parole. And what we know is that black children get these sentences at a per capita rate that is 10 times that of white youth um and what we don't talk about enough is that the super predator theory has since been disproven right that juvenile crime wave that these um criminologists predicted and put a you know photo of uh you know black child all on and 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 shared all over the media um that theory never came to be um it was it, it was disproven um but the laws remain. And so, so much of what we're doing in in trying to end life without parole and other extreme sentences is to both dismantle these policies and reform them so that they are actually age appropriate and reflect what we know about our young people and their capacity for change and why they should never be discarded for life as children. Um, but also to lift up the humanity in those who have received these sentences and other extreme sentences or have, uh, who have been convicted of serious crimes as teenagers, but are, are far from what anyone would ever imagine as a super predator. And I think part of you know, what is so important about this work is helping to recognize you know, both um, you know, what we've done um, to these young people and demonizing them in this way and and in creating laws and policies that are inappropriate um, for young people but but also in recognizing that all of us are better than the worst thing we th- the worst things that we've ever done and when you look at the children you know who have received these sentences um, and you look at what they're you know what they'd experienced before they ever came in conflict with the law and their incredible resilience and their incredible ability to overcome obstacles um, and their and to and to move on with their lives, feeling deeply remorseful, deeply remorseful for the mistakes that they have made and dedicating their lives um, to the people who've been impacted by those mistakes. I think, you know, that work is so crucial in helping us to come to terms with not just a change in law but a greater understanding about who we are as americans who we are you know um, uh, in in our communities um, you know where um, there are um, such disparities in opportunity um, and really come to terms with our role in addressing those things mm-hmm.
0: you know as it relates to the work that you've been doing um, who are we as, as Americans, right? That's my first question. And then who, who might we want to become? Well, as um,
1: the eternal optimist, I will say this. I think that one of the extraordinary things about doing work on this issue um, is, is that we meet people from all political persuasions, all walks of life, who have decided to come together to address this issue to address mm-hmm. um, this notion um, that kids, some kids are worthy of, of dying in prison, unworthy of ever reentering society. And so that, I mean, seeing the people come together around this issue, um, it brings me hope um, because, you know, I'll share a story. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have worked in um, states all across the United States over the last few years to ban life without parole for children. And the number of states that ban life without parole for children has quadrupled in the last five years. And the states that are leading the way are conservative states. And they have had in some places broad bipartisan support. Um, In Nevada, our bill passed unanimously a few years ago. Um, And and, and these are places where you, know, you don't necessarily expect to see the kind of sweeping reforms um, that, they, that they have made. And then, um, we worked this year um, to ban life without parole in the, uh, for children in Arkansas. And we went there two years ago and failed. And the reason that we failed was because we worked um, there, uh, you know, we had this robust campaign, we were able to work with the prosecutors and engage them there. Um, But there was one particular legislator there who was opposed to our bill. And she carried a lot of weight in the legislature because her daughter had been murdered. Mm. And so she was seen as the authority on criminal justice issues. Everybody kind of lined up behind her um, and took her her lead um, when it came to justice reform issues. And she opposed the bill. So two years later, we went back. And when we went back, we met with her as our first, the first meeting before we went in to, to figure out you know, what the strategy was going to be. We wanted to make sure um, we understood where she stood. Um, and in that meeting, um, it was my advocacy director, um, my colleague Xavier, um, who was convicted of a murder when he was 13 and served uh, 13 years in prison and has been out now 15 years and it's an extraordinary person. And a woman named Linda White, whose daughter was killed by um, two youth in Texas um, over 25 years ago, but who's been incredibly supportive of reform. And you know, the four of them sat down together and had a conversation. And in that conversation, they connected on a just on a very human level. So you know, whether this is about being American or just being human, they connected to one another. They came from very different places. And had different life experiences, but they connected. And over the course of that meeting, that legislator not only went from not opposing our bill um, to supporting it, she asked to sponsor the bill. Mm, And it was because she could see, looking at Xavier, looking at Linda, that we have more in common than we do, uh, you know, than our differences. And that, um, that we all have the potential to be better than our worst acts, right? We all... Are redeemable but particularly our kids and I think in that moment you know she she saw hope she saw and she she did something really bold she went on the floor and she gave an impassioned speech and they lined up behind her and the and Arkansas now bans life without parole for children and just next week there are people who were told they were going to die in prison as children coming up for parole for the first time. And, you know, I mean, I think that that just really speaks to both how egregious it is that we sentence kids to die in prison, right? That you can get people from, um, you know, both ends of the political spectrum together to say, no, no, we've gone too far. But I think it also speaks to just how we as human beings want to relate to one another and want to be able to be in relationship with one another and want to be able to understand one another. And, you know, in that meeting, you know, I think you saw, we saw that happen and it had
0: a really profound effect. Thank you for that story. In um, in 2012, the Supreme Court ruled against mandatory life without parole for children convicted of murder. And so now in the United States, we have, what is it, 29, right? 29 states that have such laws or laws like that on the books. Um, how, how does that work? So why is it only 29 states? And then how does the campaigns work um, via the story that you just told? How, how does the campaign sort of work to mitigate... Um, and to potentially change uh, and bring to light uh, the issue for legislators who, you know, maybe are coming at it from a s- perspective that is not about the Xavier's of the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the Supreme Court has stepped in three times just since 2010 on this issue alone, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, and it and it followed um, the ban on the juvenile death penalty, which which was just in 2005. So, you know, 12 years ago, we were still executing kids in this country. Um, so to think about, you know, sort of how far we've come since then, it's, it's, it's you know, it's exciting to see. And um, but so in 2010, you know, the court ruled in Granby, Florida, that it's unconstitutional to impose a life without parole sentence on someone convicted of a non homicide offense. And then in 2012, the court stepped in again and said that, um, you know, the, the, that states cannot and the federal government cannot impose a mandatory life without parole sentence on a child. Um, and that and then in 2016, in Montgomery, v Louisiana, yeah. they held that 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 Miller decision was retroactive, but also took it a step further and said that if you can show a kid can be rehabilitated, you can't impose life without parole on a child, right? They used this standard that they came up with that, you know, of course, is challenging, um, is creating challenges for us everywhere. But they said if a child is irreparably corrupt, then you know, the sentence is only, Available to those whom are irreparably corrupt, and and if they can demonstrate transient immaturity, then this then the sentence is
0: unconstitutional. That to be silly, but it almost sounds like something that that um, like in a Star Trek episode they would say about an alien race, right? Like these people, uh, and to some extent, I, these people that have been created for television. Right. are uh or you know for action are irreparably corrupt. like there's nothing that we can do that's going to make this group of people better and so i'm, I'm just curious from the legal ease perspective what is that uh what is what does that mean Well, so it means different things in different
1: places, and that's Mm -hmm. the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Because there is no strict definition or standard. Um, And so as a result, it's being implemented differently in -hmm. in different parts of the country. Now, I will say um, Justice Scalia, in his impassioned dissent in Montgomery, said that Justice Kennedy, in writing Montgomery, and issuing the standard had created a standard that should be impossible to meet. And we agree, God rest his soul. We agree with Justice Scalia that in fact this should be a standard that is impossible to meet. Kids are at a stage developmentally where you cannot know what they're going to be like decades later. Um, And so therefore it is never appropriate to impose a final irrevocable judgment on a child. Um, And that's why we're fighting all over the country to end Life without parole and these other extreme sentences that are essentially life without parole, um, and um, and so you know the work that we're doing is is directly with legislators and supporting defense attorneys challenging these these sentences in court to help them make these arguments to say that you know because of what we know about children um, this sentence is never appropriate and that there are other ways to hold them accountable that are more age appropriate and reflect their unique characteristics as children and so rather than litigate what is irreparably corrupt, ban the sentence outright, because Mm -hmm. that is not Mm -hmm. something that, you know, any of us should be in the practice of having to try to figure out, especially when, you know, um, the adolescent development research shows that kids are still changing and into their 20s. And so, um, you know, and and the good news is, that um the vast majority of them age out of criminal behavior so that just the notion that we would send them to prison for the rest of their lives for something that they've done as kids is is just absurd and barbaric um we mm-hmm. absolutely need to hold these kids accountable the kids we're talking about the vast majority of them have been convicted of murder mm-hmm. the worst crimes you know imaginable in some cases in some cases they were there at the time of the crime um, but they weren't the shooters but they're hold equally Um, accountable. They're still being given um, the the same penalties that the shooter would. Um, Nonetheless, the the consequences are no less tragic when when they're committed by uh, a child. Uh, And I think we need to be honest about that. We need to be honest about the suffering um, of of people, uh, family members who've lost loved ones to youth violence. And what we know in working with many of those family members is that they don't want to see these kids die in prison either. You know, Linda White, who I talked about earlier, mm-hmm. you know, she says for her, what brings her healing is to see the people out and doing well, seeing the people who have committed these crimes, seeing the boy who killed her daughter get paroled and return to the community and do well and to give back. That's what brings her healing. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and, and we find that in, in talking to the, to the people who are directly impacted by this. Um, so this isn't about you know, a, a get out of jail free card. This is about how do we hold these kids accountable for harm that they have caused and do it in a way that's age appropriate and do it in a way that reflects the trauma that they have endured oftentimes before the crime has even been committed um, and do it in a way that gives them hope of returning home and, and, you know, getting a second chance. And mm. as my friend, Father Greg Boyle has always said, you know, we fight for second chances for these kids, but the
0: reality is many of them never got a first chance. As you were talking, I was actually thinking about um, that the sort of individual, the, the ethos of, um, of individuality, right? That I did this alone right? That you and I, whatever, right? Like whether that's a great thing, right? We're doing good work. That this was my uh, personal achievement runs against this notion that both the crimes that young people commit, what led them there, Mm -hmm. and the healing that has to take place Uh, and I'll use Danielle, uh, a colleague and friend, Danielle Sered's uh, terms, right, between the responsible party and the harmed party, um, that that has to happen within a community context, right? So that if we are um, interested in sort of healing, not just for the the person who has lost someone, which I, you know, I cannot imagine the hurt and the anger that must be part of that, reality but that that um the the sort of the punitive uh system that we have in place like how much healing does that bring the family right Mm -hmm. of this person that was of the harmed of the harmed party and so that sort of really does run against um this notion that one person is responsible if I am beginning to see the humanity in this person and understand that there were mitigating factors and that led them there, but also that they have to be held responsible for in an age appropriate way, right? I think um, as we think about um, all of us listening, I don't know, I just wanna challenge, challenge us to think about you know, how do we heal in community? right? Like, what does that look like? But I want to ask you a question about age-appropriate. You've said that a few times. And um, what would age-appropriate justice or accountability look like? Mm -hmm. Um, And how does that differ from the current uh, sentences that that you know about today? Mm -hmm. Well, we know that the juvenile
1: justice system, while flawed, was set up with um, the understanding that kids are different from adults and that they do have a unique capacity for, be, for rehabilitation and that therefore rehabilitation should be the focus when it comes to kids. And so that is what we're talking about when it comes to our you know age-appropriate alternatives. We want to see children being held accountable in a way that focuses on rehabilitation and reintegration into society, um, that focuses on Uh, you know, addressing trauma in a way Mm. that is, allows folks to heal and putting them in a metal box is not that, right? We know that throwing kids in the adult, uh, in adult jails and prisons and into the adult system where they're represented by lawyers, oftentimes who have no training whatsoever in representing kids, um, all of that is wrong and re-traumatizing, right? So what we're talking about is a system in which Children are getting support and treatment, and that the focus is really on helping them heal and recognize the harm that they have caused, and give them the opportunity to uh, to reintegrate into society and um, and and give back in the way that they you know should they choose to um, you know to 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 um, work toward um, you know becoming the people that they have the potential to be with those sorts of supports. Um, There, we know that the juvenile justice system can hold these young people um, who've been convicted of serious crimes, including murder, and many of them do. Um, But because of the way the laws have changed in in recent years, as as I was saying earlier, because of the super predator theory and, and tough on crime policies, Um, most of them are thrown into the adult system Mm. and just deemed adults and kind of discarded at that point point, given up on. And so, um, you know, we at at the campaign are working to address the most egregious, the most extreme, the most excessive penalties imposed on kids um, because they violate international human rights law. They are, you know, we're the only country in the world that sentences our kids to life without parole for children. We want to get rid of this egregious practice and because we recognize that the system as a whole is too punitive. And so if we can address this most extreme sentence and sort of ratchet down the ceiling, we make the system as a whole less punitive. So in the short term, uh, you know, the sentences that uh, that are replacing Life Without Parole for Children are other lengthy sentences that we, you know, Think are inappropriate for children um, in many places. Um, you know, the appropriate way to handle these kids is, you know, we believe in the juvenile system where they can have greater access to rehabilitation and um, it's not the adult system whatsoever. Um, but we realize that there are people who are s- serving these extreme sentences and that the political reality is that we can fight to get them out. And and you know and um, take compromises that are not the ideal, um, because that is our political reality. and in the meantime, in doing so, people are coming home. Um, people who were told they would die in prison are coming home and building families and building lives. And um, so it is a long-term effort. And I think that's important for everybody to realize that, like with the Supreme Court decisions, they don't implement themselves. We're on the ground trying to help give them teeth, give them meaning. Um, We're trying to make sure that the people who are supposed, who are serving these unconstitutional sentences get constitutional sentences and get a meaningful shot at life um, on the outside. Um, and so, you know, it is a long term strategy. This isn't something we're going to solve overnight. Um, but at the end of the day, we're out there talking all day long about the need to hold, people, hold kids accountable in age appropriate ways because we know that the more that we talk about that and the more that people hear what that can look like and see what that can look like when we have, you know, our, our ICANN members, the, the people who've been to prison and, and have turned their lives around, when people see. That we can do this um, in a way that isn't so dehumanizing, that isn't about giving up on our kids, that is about building on their potential. It is about um, recognizing, you know, um, how young people can change with the supports that they need, and um, recognizing you know, how we failed them before they came in contact with the system to begin with. In doing all of that work, we hope that gradually
0: we'll see, you know, we'll come closer to that reality. There's a lot of conversation around decarceration that has to do with nonviolent felonies, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of movements, a lot of hashtags, you know, of, you know, lowering the numbers by, you know, 2030, and all of that stuff. And so I, um, but I'm always left with the question, like, what about the people that are deemed, or that are thought to be, or that have a record of violence? You know, what, how do we, like, I don't want us to fall into the trap of, like, there's, like, the good people, and then there's, like, the bad people, right? Like, how do we begin to think about the humanity of everybody understanding that some of these young people have actually committed you know violent crimes and and will uh, admit to that and yet uh, deserve age appropriate uh, uh, sentences and uh, an opportunity to redeem and and you know if we if we believe in the idea of redemption right so so tell me a little bit about that because i know that there's sometimes a divide between the nonviolent Uh, sort of space and then you know the like how are we going to work to talk about and also provide services for young people that provide violent violent offenses Mm -hmm.
1: well so I'll say a few things first Mm -hmm. of all I mean we focus on the quote-unquote worst the worst right the kids that people say are the quote-unquote super predators the kids that you know and that is because, um, one, you know, because they're serving these extreme sentences that are, that have no place in our society. And two, because we know that they have um, a unique ability to turn their lives around and to, um, you know, not, if, if given the chance, you know, people, kids who go in, you um, for serious crimes, including murder, don't reoffend. Um, you know the recidivism rates with this population are extraordinarily low mm-hmm. um, because we know they age out of criminal behavior. The people who are serving life without parole right now um, for crimes committed as children can, in most cases, not even relate to the child that they were who committed mm-hmm. their their wow. crime. You know, I mean, they, they look in the mirror and, you know, something Xavier says, it's like, it's like this eternal nightmare when he looks in the mirror, you know, he said when he was in prison, he looked in the mirror and he saw himself as an adult. He couldn't even relate Mm -hmm. to the child he was at the time of his crime because Mm of growth, because of resilience, because, you know, people... Grow and change, and and in recognizing and coming to terms with their crimes, I think people, rec- you know, these folks in particular have have recognized, um, you know, that they aren't that person, that they aren't, they have no interest in in um, going back to that community. Their interest is in giving back. It, it, it is in living out this eternal apology, um, you know, to their communities and to the to the families of the of the victims, and. And, and I say that having met a lot of these folks all across the country, you know, and to see them coming home now. And, you know, I was on a call earlier this week with an individual who um, was serving life without parole in Pennsylvania, which is the state that leads the nation in this practice. And, yep, yep. He, um, and the last time I was having a conversation with him, was at Graterford prison when he was serving life without parole. He is now out. And next week I'm going with him to Harrisburg to advocate for an end to life without parole in Pennsylvania. And wow. it is, yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing to me. 70 people have been released in Pennsylvania alone who were sentenced to life without parole as children. There's extraordinary progress. And these are people who are saying, you know, I will never go back. There's once they have their freedom. I mean, they have given so much of their lives um, decades in many cases, decades and decades in prison um, and and so you know I think it 's short sighted to to draw these distinctions between violent and nonviolent I think um, it 's misguided for a number of reasons you know I think first of all, you have to look at drivers of mass incarceration it 's not just the numbers it 's the length of sentences, so you have to address these lengthy, lengthy sentences, and in doing so, it would be strategic to look at the population. Who are serving these lengthy sentences, who we know because science tells us that they are gonna be rehabilitated and it's less likely they're gonna reoffend than their adult counterparts. That's not to throw my, you know, colleagues under the bus who have those, you know, um, the who are advocating for the the adults who are serving these extreme sentences because I, I think all of these like these sentences deserve a second look, but drawing that distinction between nonviolent and violent is misguided because of that, mm-hmm. um, so it is actually strategic if you're trying to address mass incarceration to look at these lengthy sentences and and you know look at a population. Um, that we know has a greater chance of coming home and doing well. And that's kids, Um, kids who've gotten these sentences. And so, you know, here we are talking about life without parole for kids. We think there's somewhere around, you know, 2,500 kids across the country who've gotten this sentence. Um, And we know that there are tens of thousands who've gotten effectively, you know, what we call de facto life sentences, 40, 50, 60 years. So if we want to address mass incarceration, let's look at those sentences. Let's look at those kids and let's look at ways that we can hold them accountable in more age-appropriate ways and, and help kind of drive down both, make the, the, the system as a whole less punitive and drive down the, the population at the same time. And I think, you know, it, the other thing I will say is that when you meet these individuals, when you talk to these folks, and this is what I can is about, our Incarcerated Children's Advocacy Network, You know, these are folks who went to prison as children for murder. And now they're working in state legislatures, talking to legislators, talking to the media, talking to judges, writing amicus briefs. They're, you know, sharing their life stories with these individuals, these policymakers, these decision makers, right? And in doing so, they're forcing us and forcing those decision makers to look beyond the crime and look at the individual and looking at the individual circumstances, looking at the racism. That exists in our system, right?
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: forcing us to look past that crime, not to not to excuse the crime, but to see more than it. And I think that's it. the other reason that it's so important to recognize the value of advocating for pe- for people who've been convicted of the most serious crimes. Because if we can help to demonstrate the humanity and demonstrate all of the brokenness throughout the systems and you know our failures throughout um, you know these kids' lives. In, in the examples of kids who are, are, who have, who've been convicted of the most serious crimes, that should make it easier to make change for kids mm-hmm. who have, and others who've been convicted of lesser crimes. Um, so, you know, I think it's short-sighted. I think it's a, a bit of a cop-out, frankly, to focus just mm-hmm. on the nonviolent crimes because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's incredible value um, in standing with those who have been considered the quote-unquote worst of the worst, and, and seeing them, I mean, you know, next week is, is going to be amazing. And this is, this is this is the thrust of what we do. But going to the state capital of Pennsylvania, the world capital and sentencing kids to die in prison and standing with these folks who were told they were going to die in prison as children and having them share with the legislators why it is they shouldn't be given up on and the people that they left behind need, need hope of a second chance. I mean, that's what this is about and i I know that that drives re- reform beyond just these extreme sentences and beyond just this one these uh, you know this population of kids because we 've seen it happen in other states in California and other places where you know this is the tip of the iceberg once you tackle this, you can open it up and talk about all the ways that the systems you know have failed these kids and um,
0: and people of color um, at every step of the way so you said that there were. About 2,500 to 2,500 uh, people that are um, in prisons that were sentenced to a juvenile life without parole uh, across the country, and Pennsylvania leads uh, in, in the practice and, and therefore in the number. Um, give give us a sense before we we have to jump off. What is the average uh, amount of time? Um, you know, for, you know, this person that you mentioned that you're going to go and advocate with him, are people serving? Like, how, how old are they when they come out? So for the juvenile lifers who that 27,
1: 2,500 um, population who have been resentenced, this, you know, um, it varies, but the majority of them are the older cases because, you know, many of these people are still being resentenced, right? Mm. This is really only just beginning because of the Supreme Court decision in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, but so for example, Mr. Montgomery, whose case was in front of the U S Supreme court, um, has, uh, ha- was just fight and he, he has served over 50 years in prison. Wow. Okay. JFK was president at the time wow. of his crime. his case, even though he won at the Supreme court in January of 2016, he was only resentenced this spring and he's coming up for parole later this year. Wow. So he's still in prison, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and a lot of these people have served decades in prison, um, the the folks who are coming home now. Some of them who are being resentenced have, have only served, you know, 10, 20 years, um, mm-hmm. which, of course, you know, is still a lot of time. And most That's cases right. double their double the time that they lived on the outside. In some case, you know, I mean, if we're talking 30 years, it's double, you know, so. Um, so it, it really varies, but the, the first cases that are moving forward tend to be the cases, the older cases where people have served, you know, three, four decades in prison.
0: Actually, before I end, Jody, if people want to find out more about you and about the work, um, that the campaign for fair sentencing does give us, give us a Twitter account, give us somewhere where they can, where can they find you? Sure.
1: So, um, well, we're, um, our Twitter is at. Uh, or the handle, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not good at Twitter, okay. <laughs> but um, the <it's> CFSY. <laughs> okay. So, okay. Um, our website's fair 7 um, And I'm just getting into Twitter, but mm-hmm. my handle is um, at uh, jkentlady. And, um, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunity to get engaged in your states uh, across the country, um, you know, even in states where we've banned life without parole and we're up to 20 states, um, you know, there's still work to be done to, to hold folks accountable as um, they implement these reforms. And so um, there's, no, there's no shortage of opportunity um, to get engaged. So we hope that folks will, will get in touch and help us spread the word about this egregious practice of sentencing our kids to die in prison that our country alone
0: imposes on our, on our kids that our country alone imposes on our kids. Again, that was fairsentencing.org and at CFSY on Twitter. So thank you very much, Jody. Uh, thank you for your time. I know it's a busy time for you. Um, so I always end with a quote. And today I found a quote um, and I'm probably not gonna pronounce this name right, but I apologize in advance as someone whose name is oftentimes mispronounced. Um, The quote today is from Haley or Hale Selassie. Um, He was born Tarif Makonin or Makonin, and he was the emperor of Ethiopia from 1930 to 1974. Uh, He sought to modernize the country and bring Ethiopia into mainstream post-World War II geopolitics. And he said, Throughout history, it has been the inaction of those who could have acted, the indifference of those who should have known better, the silence of the voice of justice when it mattered most that has made it possible for evil to triumph. So, you know, I I thought about that and I found that quote um, in part because I think that what Jody is asking us to do um, is to actually not be, not be silent, not let the voice of justice be silent here when we're talking about our children, all of our children. Last but not least, last time we talked about Puerto Rico, my beloved uh, little island, and for people that are still interested and, you know, Puerto Rico needs a lot of help, Um, We uh, have been giving our money to the Hurricane Maria Relief Fund. Again, that's Hurricane Maria Relief Fund. It is administered by the Center for Popular Democracy. And on the ground, they have an amazing sister, uh, Siomara Cano-Diaz, who's working with groups on the ground like Taller Salud and Proyecto Enlace at El Caño. If you're interested in learning more, please look uh, up Hurricane Maria Relief Fund on Facebook. And always a thank you to our guests, Jody Kent-Levy from the Campaign for Fair Sentencing. And a big thank you to our editors at Soul Design, S-O-L Design, based out of Atlanta. And of course, to the beautiful voices of the legacy women. Thank you for listening to Out of the Margins.